Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. Case number 14-5230, Jefferson Morley, Appellant versus Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Lassar for the Appellant, Mr. Peterson for the Appellee. Thank you. And, and uh, just to let everybody know, Judge Williams is participating by telephone today, and Judge Ginsburg uh, will consider the cases based on the audio, audio recordings of the arguments. Well, uh, thank, good morning, Your Honor. Thank you very much um, uh, for you and Judge Williams. Um, I'm James H. Lassar, representing uh, the plaintiff appellant, Jefferson Morley. Um, Mr. I, I, have a, I have a question for you. I may as well start right in right now. Uh, I think it's clear under our cases that, that the question of the utility of the information uh, gathered is evaluated ex ante. And, uh, uh, ex ex excuse me, I missed uh, the two words there. The, the, the uh, value of the information gathered is uh, considered ex ante. In other words, it's the prospect of some useful information, not not whether useful information, interesting information, publicly needed information is obtained. That seems to be clear from David. But uh, in figuring out what information uh, judged ex ante is of interest, I noticed Davey says the information Davey requested about individuals allegedly involved in President Kennedy's assassination serves a public benefit. And I, I'm trying to figure out what is really intended with allegedly involved. Um, I suppose someone alleges that uh, the whole assassination was engineered by Stephen Williams. Does that, does that mean um, uh, an inquiry? a FOIA inquiry into uh, every activity of Stephen Williams before the assassination date is, uh, would be covered? Uh, I think that would be an insufficient nexus. <laughs> the, um, I reviewed um, yesterday the uh, oral argument um, in uh, 2013 at which you were present, and um, <laughs> Similar, maybe. Um, the uh, but what struck me about essentially uh, the issue then was whether or not um, the district court had complied with the law of the circuit as expressed in Davy, yeah. and the court uh, remanded to. Uh, to require him to comply with the law of the circuit. Now, the law of the circuit, um, Judge Edwards, who was a member of the panel at, at uh, that hearing, um, r repeatedly um, expressed the issue um, in a little bit different terminology than is used in the Davy opinion itself. Uh, he referred to uh, the uh, test as, as being um, 
the um, uh, let me see I've got it here that the topic of the request and the purpose of the request as opposed to the contents of the request and he pointed out that in uh, Davey the dissenting judge had based his opinion, Judge Randolph, had based his opinion on the um, contents of the document. Uh, yeah, you're, and, you're, I, I think there's no doubt at this point that the, you look at the request for particular documents are delivered. Uh, but if what I'm trying to figure out is how much of a burden the requester has to show that there was a prospect of something valuable. In other words, everyone agrees that the Kennedy assassination uh, was a, a terrible event and B, uh, something of, of enormous consequence and, and thoughts about it, understanding of it, uh, is very important in, even in modern America. So that, that's a given. But how, what I'm, what I'm trying to inquire is um, how how serious a connection to that event uh, has to be shown to, to fit within the idea that it has the requisite probability of turning up something uh, of public interest. Well, um, I, I thought the yeah. hypothetical I gave uh, was clearly beyond the range. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I would agree to that. I think if it's uh, wholly irrelevant um, to the controversy, uh, that certainly would disqualify it. But of course, you may not know that ex ante. I mean, that's the problem: is that is that Judge Williams' question raises yeah. is that you yeah. wouldn't know ex ante whether it's wholly irrelevant. Now, we might all think that it's very unlikely that there was any yes. involvement. And that's why I think that, that the uh, liberal standard adopted by Davey is the uh, appropriate standard. And it's, it, it, in any case, what, however you try to draw the boundaries on that nexus, it's met here and met here. Uh, that, it, that, may, that may be true. At least we'll, we'll assume that for purposes of the question. But I guess... The question Judge Willing raises is an important one because we have to ask we have to ask ourselves about the implications of a regime that we adopt, and we yeah. probably want to avoid adopting a regime that's going to open the floodgates in this kind of context. But I wonder if part of uh, and you, you tell me since you're in the business of or at least in this particular instance of formulating FOIA requests, I take it we only get to the question of public interest if somebody substantially prevailed in the first place. So, because we're only talking about the fees aspect of the case. Yes. So, in order to even get down the road to where we'd ask whether it's a, there is public interest in asking whether Steve Williams' association with the Kennedy assassination is something that passes the bar, we'd have to assume a circumstance in which there was a FOIA request made that went to litigation and the requester substantially prevailed. Yes. Uh, that's, that's certainly, and that uh, is the... The, the first um, of two things that are mentioned in Davey, uh, the first one is the, the effect on the litigation. And 
here the effect on the litigation, the fruit of the legislation, of the litigation was that new information was released. That's one of the changes since this case was last argued in this court, is that the CIA and the district court judge now concede that new information was released. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is it true, and I just don't know the answer, so that's why I put it to you, is it true that one check against the possibility that we would have requests that bear an insufficient nexus, one check against that possibility is that it's unlikely that you'd have a situation in which the requester substantially prevailed in the first place. So you never get to that question. Yes, that's the first thing. Another thing that I would point out is that the CIA, in responding to the request, in effect held that there was a connection to the JFK assassination because it referred the request, tried to force the requester to refer the request to the National Archives because of its JFK Act collection was there. So the CIA, in its response, assumed that. I would also point out that it's not just the JFK assassination that is at issue here. The beginning of this court's last opinion lays out three or four factual findings that the requester had made a request for JFK assassination records, that he hadn't obtained the records, that records relating to the Kennedy assassination were released as a result. So in a sense, I think this court has already foreclosed that avenue. It has found that these records were related to the Kennedy assassination. The question is whether the Kennedy assassination is a significant historical event. I don't think that's in dispute. I'm sorry, I'm having a little difficulty hearing you. I think everyone agrees that it was an incredibly important historical event. But the question is how close is the relationship between the request and the event have to be? My guess is there's something of a sliding scale. That is to say, something digging deeper into the Kennedy administration probably gets more slack than digging deeper into the BP oil spill. Yes, I think that's... Did you say more flack or more slack? More slack. More slack. In other words, a lower probability of hitting any pager is acceptable. I think that's true because the stakes are very great. Basically, you have a situation in which there has been investigation after investigation that has discounted the original findings of the Warren Commission. And you have numerous questions arising as a result of that. The activities of Mr. Joannides are related to that because 
one of the things that was learned uh, after the Warren Commission report was that it had never uh, uh, inquired about the assassination plots against Castro. Here there is a nexus because the request is directed at Joannides, and he was in charge of a Cuban exile group that was responsible for plotting those assassination uh, efforts against Castro, and he was uh, uh, also involved directly with the House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations. He kept information from the House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations, including the fact that he was the case officer they were looking for so they could investigate the connections um, between Lee Harvey Oswald and this Cuban exile group. Can I ask the, can I ask the following question about um, uh, the point that Judge Williams started with, which is that in applying the public benefit part of the standard, the first prong, we look to the request as it's framed ex ante rather than ex post at what's in fact released because, and there's certainly some sense to that because from the perspective of the requester, they don't know what they're going to get until they yes. make the request and the government responds. Um, but in Davey, there's certainly language to that effect. But there was also mention, at least, of what, in fact, was released ex post. And I'm just wondering what you think the relevance of the mention in Davey of what, in fact, was released ex post is if we're only looking at ex ante. I, I think that the, the, the real focus is on the relationship between uh, the documents released and, and the event. And the documents released there showed that, um, that the, uh, they related to a person who had been charged with conspiring uh, to commit the assassination of, of um, President Kennedy, Clay Shaw. So there was a clear nexus between an obvious matter of public interest, the prosecution of a citizen of the United States for having conspired to assassinate the pres president, and the documents. There is the same kind of relationship here where you have uh, documents that um, uh, indicate, uh, extol Joannides for his accomplishments at times when he was one in 1961, 62, 62 through 64 period when he was involved in running the DRE, the CIA funded exile organization that was right all, all yeah. of which all of which goes to and uh, you you have arguments to this effect all of which goes to what in fact was released yes what in fact you obtained i guess my question is there the the framing of this public interest um, the public benefit criterion could focus on not necessarily what in fact was released but what was requested at the outset because the idea being that the requester doesn't know at the outset what's going to come out of the endeavor because that's why they're asking because they don't know what's behind the wall and so they put in a request and if if so I, I take it part of your argument is we should be looking ex ante at was what was requested and there's certainly a lot of language in Davey 
that would support that frame of reference rather than looking ex post at what was released. I guess my question is, but Davey's not entirely lacking in language that points to what was in fact released after the fact also. It seems to have both. I would agree with that assessment. It does have to seem both. But the holding of the case, I think, is pretty clear that Judge Edwards' summarization of it is, I think, right on the mark, that it is not the contents of the documents. It is the nexus between the request and the event. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I have another question, and that is some of these documents were available in the archives for a copying fee of, what, 25 cents a page? It may be. My recollection is it's even more expensive than that now. Even, say, 50 cents. But low compared to lawyers' fees, right? That's the point you made at the last hearing. Yes. And at least insofar as litigation revolved around that issue, doesn't U.S. tax analysts prevent the award of fees for any segregable part of litigation directed to documents that are available in the archives? No, I don't think so. The tax analyst decision, it comes down the way it did because the requester had a very strong, direct, personal, financial interest in obtaining the documents. He was essentially running a subscription service, and he wanted a quick and easy way to get the documents for a private entity that was making money off getting the documents. That's a far cry from the circumstances here, where you can argue that Jefferson Morley had something of a commercial interest, what Judge Edwards referred to as a quasi-commercial interest. But the quasi-commercial interest is still in the favored category of public interest requesters. That quasi-commercial category is not discounted for qualification under the public benefit analysis or under any of the four factors. This is also where the potential distinction between ex ante and ex post starts to confuse the mind a bit, because I can understand the impetus behind segregating the documents that are available otherwise from another agency from those that are new. But ex ante, nobody knows, or at least the requester doesn't know. Well, the situation with the National Archives is that, first of all, there have been new developments since the last hearing with regard to the National Archives. I went into, with Judge Williams, I think in some detail at the last hearing, about the procedures for trying to obtain JFK assassination documents at the National Archives. There is no electronic facility for accessing the documents. In fact, there's no, not all of the records that are part of that collection have research identification forms 
which are posted on the NARA website. But those are highly unreliable, and what we have learned in recent weeks is that after telling the public for the past several years uh, over uh, uh, great skepticism by myself and others that that they had the CIA had only withheld 1,100 or 1,176 documents from being released by the deadline of the JFK Act in 2017. That in fact we now know they've now admitted that there are thousands upon thousands of documents that are not accounted for, that are, are still being withheld. So the system is unreliable. It can't be trusted. And in this case, when we, we the, the CIA initially told us that there were 78 JFK documents and they were to go look for them at NARA, but when we got the request, when they did, first did the search after we got instructions that they were to search, they came back with 88 documents. So, the so is, 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 is this part, is, is this going to the point that they benefit from getting documents even with respect to the documents that are already in the public domain in yes. NARA? Yes. It's not just the saving on copying costs, it's that... Yeah. If you were to go over there and do the search yourself, you still wouldn't come up with the same documents that the that the government has in its possession. Yes, and, and you would be you'd be reliant upon uh, someone to guide you and try to find the appropriate place to go, and it's very complicated. There are five million pages of records there, and um, uh, there are all kinds of problems with with that collection that, that hopefully at some point we'll be able to get a congressional hearing on. But at the moment, you have to go through this process of you either make a FOIA request in which the agency that is, and it's not necessarily the CIA, it could be the State Department or the FBI, the agency has to be responsible for conducting the search. There you've got some handle on the search without having to do it yourself. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you. That's uh, all I have to say unless you have any further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. May it please the Court, the public benefit factor favors awarding of a petition of attorney's fees when the production of the responsive documents from the FOIA requests has been found to have added to the fund of information that the public can use to make the vital political choices. As well, so so that, that formulation focuses on what's in fact produced. And um, if I can just start with where Judge Williams started, which is yes. let's assume that what Davey stands for is the proposition that you look ex ante at what was requested. If And I know you may have a disagreement with that, but just indulge me. If, if you approach it from that perspective, what's the argument that the public interest, the public benefit criterion is not squarely implicated here? Yes. Well, assuming that the request is the fulcrum, and mm -hmm. we use that um, as the starting point, um, the request itself, um, paraphrasing, 
asked for all the documents concerning Mr. Joinides. And um, it was a very broad request and, 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 um, and a broad sweeping request. Um, here, that request could also be looked at in terms of where are the connective tissues between Mr. Joinides and the assassination request, because the request also referenced in the request that, that this, the purpose of the request for the documents from Joanides was to add further light on the assassination, not just a, a uh, uh, expose on Mr. Joanides' life and his, and his times, but to bring light on the JFK assassination plot. Even under that light, the evidence that Mr. Joanides had anything to do with a plot to kill the president is scant at best. The evidence that's presented in this case um, talks about how um, Mr. Joannidis shared a city with Mr. Oswald as, at a certain point in time that no one knows and no one can demonstrate. And that is one of the nexus that's used to prove that there is a, a, a connection between Mr. Joannidis and Mr. Oswald. It also talks about a career award where the 30-year career of a CIA employee was used to make a very weak connection between a two-year period in that career and that the CIA, therefore, if assuming that there was some sort of a legal activity in that two-year uh, two period, that the CIA endorsed that illegal activity to have a plot so, so to kill the president. So now we're, ta we're talking about what, in fact, was produced. I understand. But, but even if we are, as to that, as to the award, my understanding from the record is that somebody thought that was interesting because didn't, weren't there a bunch of media sources that, in fact, republished the photograph of the award recipient with the award? Or as right. Uh, my understanding is that the district court was never presented the photograph itself, but there was evidence that there was a ph photographer at their award ceremony, and there may very well be a, a photograph out in the open. Oh, is that not in the record? I thought it was represented. Is it is at least represented in the briefing that the photograph was reproduced in multiple media sources? Is that that's not in the record? I, I'm I'm unaware of of that. I was just re referencing a footnote in the in the in the memorandum and opinion of the of the district court where it indicated that it did not receive the photograph itself, but took it for granted that there was a photographer there, and even assuming that there was a photograph. But do you know, you, you know the record of the case. Is, are, are the photographs, the, the reproductions of the photograph and media sources, were they at least cited, or are they in the yeah, record? Yeah, they are, they are cited. And there, there, is a, there is a photograph that I believe that the, the appellant is referencing. I'm just simply alerting the court that the district court never had that photograph in its hands, um, according to the footnote that it provided in, in its memorandum of opinion. Right. I mean, I know, what the, I know what the footnote says, but I guess the question is whether the footnote's right based oh, on what, what I, the district court I was presented with. I understand. And, or, so you're not taking the position that the district court did not, in fact, did not have the photographs either before or available to it. You're just saying that the district court indicated in its opinion that it was unaware of that. That's exactly right, Your Honor. Okay. Just, just, that's what the district court represented. Yeah. Okay. Um, but even assuming the existence of the photograph, I, I think that the analysis is correct. And I, I don't want to provide any short shrift to the court's hypothetical of, of ex ante consideration of what is, what's before the, um, the actual production and the request itself. Um, as the court indicated, we, you know, we, we do 
we do disagree with that formulation, but the, the downside of having a, a regime where the request itself is the fulcrum um, opens, does open the door to a, broad, um, to a broad request such as the one we have here before us. Well, where that doesn't depend upon how uh, serious the connection must be between the documents uh, requested and some uh, at least plausible or not completely implausible uh, theory of, uh, of actually an involvement with the Kennedy assassination, right? Right. So the, the, the dichotomy between plausible and implausible, um, those are considerations, of course. I think the district court used a, a different standard as to whether or not it was likely to add to the public fund, not whether it was truthful or not truthful um, in, in, in terms of its actual content or its result. Um, the district court, I think, specifically uh, demurred when it, when, when, um, when it broached the subject of whether the information itself was truthful or not truthful, but instead tried to focus on whether or not the information, assuming the truthfulness of it, whether the information itself and getting back to the ex post production, whether that, those documents, those four documents um, added something to the public discourse that could help inform the public at large about the political choices it, it needs to make. And the court is absolutely right that the, the topic area of this needs to be separated from the actual production. Of, of what we have before us after a decade of litigation um, on this particular case, after the decade of the, from, from the very beginning of the court request till now, um, and over 1,200 documents being produced, we, we reduced down to four documents. And those four documents pertain to the topic areas I outlined before, which is the career award and, and travel forms. And none of those documents have the connective tissue that you find in Davey. In Davey, there are, there's, there's no dispute, at least the court found that there was no dispute, that the connective tissue was there. And that there was a, a, there was a focus of the produced documents that bared on the actual truth or the falsity of the, of the event in question. And that was, the fulcrum that that court used in order to make the decision as to whether or not there is a public benefit. Here we have a dispute. One of the points that was made in Davey um, and echoed, I think, in our prior decision in this case that affected the remand was that, with, to use your language of connective tissue, you may not know at one particular point in time what the connective tissue is. It might spawn subsequent inquiries that in turn spawn subsequent inquiries that in, then draw the connections. And that is at least a possibility in a situation like this when we're already talking about, you know, uh, I don't want to use a pejorative term, but we're, we're talking about conspiracies to, mm -hmm. to, to some extent by nature. And so part of the enterprise here is want to look to see whether there happen to be travel documents that put people in the same place in the same rough window of time. And if there are, then maybe that leads somebody to look into it, scrutinize it a little bit more, and then they're not going to look at the government. Maybe they go interview some people that were on site, and, and that spawns some things. And so it... it Part of the reason that I think a lot of AV suggests looking ex ante is married with this proposition that you don't know the connective tissue based on a particular frame of reference in point in time, 
you have to just understand that they could lead to subsequent increase that could bear fruit. And I want to address that point in two ways. First, I want to get to what I believe the case law in the circuit talks about in terms of the purpose of the actual fee petition in FOIA and the fact that the initial purpose of the FOIA fee-shifting provision was to not incentivize the requesters to come forward with legitimate requests or otherwise, but to incentivize the agencies not to hide behind bureaucracy and essentially wait out those requesters who could not afford the lengthy litigation. And so when looked at it from that point of view, it's not focused on the request at all in terms of the reason or the trigger for the attorney's fees provision to kick in. But furthermore, in a case like this, you're absolutely right, Your Honor, you'll never know when you're requesting what the documents will produce. But if you ask a broad enough question, and if the chances are great that you will find something that's been withheld that will be produced, and at that point you are considered a substantially prevailing party, and you're in this situation again, and I think maybe more so than one may, than maybe the appellant wants to admit that this is a repeatable situation where after a decade of litigation you have four documents that have weak to tenuous connections to the actual event at hand, and the fees are on the table for the taxpayer to pay at that point. But it only took a decade and there were only four documents because it's not entirely the requester's fault, right? No. I mean, we're only here because we went to litigation in the first place. Yes. If everything had been done in the way that it turned out at the back end, then we never would have gone to litigation. Well, you know, that brings up the point of the agency's conduct, correct? Because in this case, the agency had a reasonable basis to withhold certain documents or to not serve certain indices because of, you know, case law that was at the time relevant and controlling in this circuit. The agency resisted that search, and with the guidance of this court and the changing of that precedent, the agency complied. You know, it was things like that in the initial shifting of the request to NARA. You know, the district court found that that was also reasonable, too, given the fact that this was not an expose on joint needies, but, in fact, an effort to bring light to the JFK assassination that there is a repository that is actually meant to help the citizens to find information in that sense. So it wasn't as if the agency, you know, gave a completely irrelevant source to go to. So those things that did elongate this process, but it was all along the lines of a reasonable conduct that is also one of the factors in dealing with, you know, the fee petition. And it goes to the other point that, you know, even setting aside the public benefit factor, there are three other factors that, you know, the district court found in the favor of the defendant as well. And of those factors, you know, only one can arguably be dispositive in these kind of cases, and that's the reasonableness of the agency's conduct. And I don't believe that there was any serious argument that this agency acted in an irrational way or some sort of 
nefarious way to, to frustrate the, uh, the purposes or the attempts of the, of the plaintiff without cause. So understanding that context um, of the purpose of the fee, of the fee shifting um, provision and the weakness of the connection in this particular case and the fact that in general these kinds of inquiries need to be very fact-specific, case-specific, and review the documentation. Um, having, a, having a case law that, that says that, well, de-emphasizes the results and just talks about the intent of the, of the request doesn't adequately protect against the abuse of that possibly happening down the road with broad requests and um, confusing and inconsistent results as a result of, of the fact that the requests themselves are not tenable for the agency to search such a broad request. I, I don't think anyone is suggesting that the intent of the requester is controlling and perhaps not even relevant. Um, the, the question is the objective link of the request to something that might be of public interest. Yes, and, and in this case, you know, the the linkage to the JFK assassination um, obviously makes a connection to a very important topic area. And if that's the topic area, um, then there, there are certain things that are so de minimis as to the actual results of that search that should cause for the public benefit factor to be called into question. And in this case, there's no question that you know, while reasonable minds can differ as to the import of the conclusion of what these documents portend, that is exactly what the district court is called upon to do, which is in their zone of discretion to, to determine what is actually connected to the overarching subject matter, in this case, the JFK assassination. And the district court determined that travel records and a career medal um, for a lifelong career in the CIA are too tenuous and too scant to justify a public benefit analysis in the favor of the appellant. How, how does the, um, in, if we're talking about degrees of remove or degrees of remoteness, then in our initial opinion in this case, or at least in the 2007 opinion in this case, part of what came up because of the way the statutes work together was how remote the connection was between the request made by Morley and the function of the church committee. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the decision that we handed down said that, well, if it was only a remote relationship, that would be one thing. But it's not merely a remote relationship. It's actually a pretty direct relationship to what the church committee was investigating. And if and that's, that's something of public interest, because that committee dealt generally with the subject of assassinations. So is there something to the fact that our prior opinion in this case documented a direct connection rather than a remote connection, at least vis-a-vis -vis the church committee? Right. So to the extent that the church committee is involved, then we're, we're talking about the investigation of the assassination. Yeah. And the subject matter of this litigation is Joannides. And the involvement of Mr. Joannides in that process has already been exposed prior to this litigation ever even even uh, commencing. 
And the CIA has already acknowledged that Joannidis served on or was a liaison with the House Select Committee in that capacity. So we get to the fact of whether this is new information now, again, whether Joannidis' connection with the investigation is really new information, even though, as the Court says, it is a direct connection. Is this new information adding to the actual fund of the public information fisc? And that's where we say we've argued that, no, that since it's not new information, as Davey indicated it needs, it should be. It should be new information, that it was, while directly connected, it wasn't new to add to the fund of public information. It didn't turn out to be new? Right. You're absolutely right. It didn't turn out to be new. If the lens is what did the requester know at the time it asked versus what it actually turned out to be, you're absolutely right. It turned out not to be new. But because the information was already in the public record, the requester had a chance to determine that this was, at least on its face, that this information was already out there. The subject matter of Mr. Joannidis and his involvement in the investigation was already out in the public domain. So if there are no further questions, I see my time has elapsed. If there are no further questions, we ask the Court to affirm the district court's decision. Thank you. We'll give you two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I just want to say that it's somewhat mind-boggling for me to hear that there is no connection, significant connection, between the newly released information and the Kennedy assassination. We have the fact that during the proceedings of the Assassination Records Review Board, the CIA could not locate the case officer who was in charge of the DRE. The House Select Committee had tried to find him. Jefferson Morley was eventually able to get the Assassination Records Review Board to produce some documents, and eventually Joannidis was identified. However, it was not known that Joannidis was working in an undercover capacity at the same time that he was working with the Congressional Committee investigating the assassination, that the Congressional Committee was inquiring as to who the case officer was, and he did not inform them, and the CIA did not inform them, and that he had a direct conflict, Joannidis had a direct conflict of interest here because he was the person responsible for paying funds to the DRE with which Oswald was involved. We have the fact that there was an award of a medal to Joannidis, which covers the period of time that he was the liaison with the House Select Committee, not informing them what it was his obligation to inform them of. That is a very direct, very substantial connection that is new information, and under any definition of what potentially contributes to 
the political uh, to to the public benefit, it meets that standard. The same with the travel records. The the CIA disputes on the basis of what evidence we don't know because there's been no affidavit in the record put in the record declaring that the travel record forms uh, say what the C what the, what the government now represents to the court. Uh, they say. The, the records themselves say travel records, and regardless of whether or not they establish precisely what the CIA claims they did or what Morley thinks they did, they establish that uh, Joannides was in New Orleans on home leave, and that is critically important because the DRE activities and the Oswald activities leading up to the assassination of President Kennedy were carried out in part in New Orleans and in part in Miami. So there's just simply no question but that that this was uh, all is all related. Now one final point on the issue of the photograph. The judge said he didn't have a copy of the actual photograph. What he had was a a citation to the website for the New York Times. The print edition of the New York Times did not carry the photograph. The digital version of it did. And the, the link to the digital version was put in the record for the district court. So it, 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 is, it is a straining credulity to claim that that was not part of what was before the court. Thank you. Thank you. Case is submitted. Thank you. Case number 17-5114, Jefferson Morley Appellant versus Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Lassar for the appellant, Mr. Peterson for the appellate. Good morning. Judge Henderson is participating and should be on the line by audio. Judge Henderson, are you there? I am. Thank you. Okay. Good morning. You may proceed. Good, good morning, Your Honor. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, allude briefly to the fact that on March the 12th we submitted a, a Rule 34-1-I uh, submission, and I, I, it's been distributed to you. Um, it relates uh, uh, to the public benefit is issue in particular, uh, which I'm going to come back to later. I'm, I want to take things out of sequence and deal with Exemption 4 first. But just briefly, uh, uh, Judge Leon's decision did not uh, refer to the photographs that were obtained in the course of this uh, litigation. And uh, as there's an old saying that a photograph is worth a thousand words, the crux of the, uh, the, the ex-ante analysis of um, uh, that uh, Judge Leon was to do is um, the identity of uh, uh, George Joannidis, the CIA case officer. And um, the photographs are, are critical to that. But I, I really want to begin with the um, fourth factor. The case was, this court very carefully crafted the remand for Judge Leon to consider all four factors um, 
the, and he was to, in exercising his discretion, was to evaluate them overall and determine whether or not they favored an award of fees for Morley. Strangely, Judge Leon found that three of the four factors favored Morley, but he concluded only by a tiny bit. And therefore, he would rely upon the fourth factor. As he said, thankfully, we can break the tie by turning to the fourth factor. What's wrong with a district judge weighing the factors as he or she sees fit? We haven't told the district court how to balance them. He can weigh the factors. The only problem is that he must do it in a principled fashion. If he violates the law himself, then he runs afoul of the discretion standard. And that's what happened here. If you take the fourth factor, which he says that the fourth factor is dispositive. He makes it dispositive. It's the one that counts. But this court has said, and in the past, Judge Leon himself conceded, that the no one factor is dispositive. So right off the bat. So let's talk about factor four before we come to the balancing point. What's wrong with his analysis that a lot of the agency positions asserted in this case either ultimately prevailed or were at least reasonably defensible? Well, neither is true. And he ignored the standard which was set down by the Davey case. He was supposed to evaluate matters in terms of the Davey case. And the Davey case said that the agency cannot shift the burden, even if it has a colorable basis for maintaining that it did things lawfully. That it can't shift that burden to the requester. Fair enough. But in this case, he made the determination that the agency positions were defensible. Yes, but in fact, they are not defensible. Which, I mean, they asserted a bunch of exemptions. Yes. And we found that the justifications weren't adequately developed on the first appeal. Or second appeal. It went back. There was further development. And then we affirmed the exemptions by judgment. The Glomar defense was ultimately upheld. The failure to search the operational records they lost on, but it was an issue of first impression. But the problem is that there are problems with all of those. The first is that there's black and white letter law here. If you violate the statutory deadline for making a determination, and you release stuff after 
long after you should have made the determination, then under the Davey precedent, that's an abuse of discretion. And that happened with respect to basically all of the exemption claims. In addition, the law requires that you respond to the request in front of you. They did not make it and do it in a timely fashion. They did not do it in a timely fashion. And it's irrational. There's no reasonable basis why they couldn't have done it in that time if they had simply followed the law that said you've got to do it in this time. The same thing is true of the Glomar defense. Yeah, I take your point about delay. The statutory deadline is, what, 20 days? It's varied over time. In my experience, agencies never meet that deadline. Are there cases that award fees simply because the agency misses the 20-day deadline and then a case is filed? I believe there are, but I cannot pinpoint one at the moment. Well, in the Davey case, the court held that the agency had failed to meet the deadline. And so, yes, there is precedent. That wasn't after the statutory 20-day time frame. That was after the litigation had been filed. That wasn't after the 20-day deadline. Davey didn't refer to that. It referred to after the litigation had been filed, at least as I read Davey. Yes, they do refer to that, but I believe there is mention of the time period in that decision. The decision is assuming that there's a colorable basis for some of this. The rational thing to do, if the CIA, for example, they didn't direct the, they directed the request, they directed Morley to file the request with another agency. They had an obligation under the statute to pursue that request. They didn't do it. And that was an obstacle that prevented Morley from timely getting information that he should have had. With respect to the Glomar defense, they initially didn't invoke it, and then later they came back and said that the review board had invoked it. But the fact is that they were simply not telling the truth. The Glomar defense should have been invoked from the outset if what they are claiming now is true was true, but it wasn't. So you go through each of these. Then with respect, for example, to Exemption 2, we had an entire remand that was due because the agency refused to recognize the impact of the Milner 
decision on Exemption 2. It changed the standard for Exemption 2 after three decades of this circuit applying a different standard. And this issue came up during the mediation process. We pointed out that the Exemption 2 had changed, that Milner had changed the standard for Exemption 2. We went through a whole separate appeal, the only issue of which was Exemption 2, and it was remanded and we got additional information under Exemption 2 at that time. So the same thing happened with respect to Exemption 6, where they initially withheld the name of Mrs. Joannides' wife and relatives, claiming that she invaded her privacy. Well, in fact, she was deceased. They had an obligation under the law to determine whether or not she was deceased. We called it to their attention. They did so. So there is case after case in which you cannot say that there was a rational basis for delay and for obstruction of the request. Now, with respect to Exemption 1, the district court was obligated under this court's remand to engage in a fresh analysis of a fresh ex ante analysis of the public. Factor 1, right? Factor 1, yes, under Factor 1. And he concedes that, in fact, Morley is a journalist and that he was looking for information. The subject is the Kennedy assassination, but he then gets away from the ex ante and goes into an analysis which is the same old analysis based on the results of the documents. He gets off into the travel documents and argues that Morley's evidence does not meet the decent chance standard under the ex ante analysis, but he's not applying ex ante. The ex ante analysis requires him to look at the request. The primary things are, one, the journalist, he is a journalist. He, therefore, fits under the preferred category of requesters. He ultimately gives you credit for that, though. He gives it, but he takes it away, and he doesn't give what he needs. This is a major factor. When you establish that, unless you can show that the request was frivolous or trivial, then you are presumed under circuit law to be able to get attorney's fees. That's the presumption. You have to show that it's trivial or frivolous, and obviously this request was not trivial or frivolous. It was supported by a journalist who obviously had a mastery of the subject, who knew what he was looking for and knew that the records. He was looking for information about 
the JFK assassination, correct? He was looking about information on George Ioannidis, a CIA case officer, which he said would be relevant to the assassination. Yes, which in some measure he felt would be relevant to the assassination controversy, meaning that the controversy over whether or not Oswald had a relationship with the DRE, with Cuban exiles, whether or not he had a financial relationship with the DRE, which was the organization. Right. And here is the really important point, is that, as I say, the point of this request was to secure the identity of George Ioannidis. And then you can argue the public, the information is out, the public can go back and forth and decide how to evaluate it. But it's clearly potentially of great public benefit, regardless of whether or not you find that there was definitely a connection or whether you disprove that there was a connection. What is the connection? You've established the identity of the agency officer who arguably had a covert relationship with a particular group. It's not arguable. Who had a relationship with a particular group. How does that tie into the Kennedy assassination? Because that group was suspected of having been involved in the Kennedy assassination. The Cuban exiles, first of all, it was a CIA-funded, it was by far the most well-funded CIA exile organization. It was the boldest of the CIA organizations. It was engaged in propaganda operations against Castro. Lee Harvey Oswald was part of that. The first news that breaks after the assassination has to do with Lee Harvey Oswald, with the DRE. Immediately upon the word of the assassination, they contact Joannides, their case officer, who never admitted it until this lawsuit forced that disclosure. They contact him and want to know if they can proceed with this tape that they had made of Oswald and one of their members, Carlos Brignier, before the assassination. Joannides tells them, yes, give me a little time, I'll check with headquarters and get back to you. They went ahead and ran it anyway, and so that guarantees that it's on headlines around the world the next day. It is the original conspiracy theory. I think we have your argument on that point. We'll give you some time on rebuttal. We'll hear from the government now. You're over your time. Thank you, Your Honor.
May it please the Court. I'll start with an analysis of Factor 4. That's what the appellant started with. And in that analysis, I believe that the district court provided the proper framework in which to view the government's behavior, which is not whether the government was ultimately correct on each position it took. That is not the standard. The standard would be whether or not there was evidence of abdurancy. How does this case differ from Davey? In the sense that the positions that the defendant took in this case were either issues dealing with first impression cases where there were no circuit law on the issue of searching operational files, and factually dealing with the request. The request itself indicated that it was interested in the connection between the CIA, Mr. Joannides, and the JFK assassination. Upon reading the request, a reasonable interpretation of that request would be one where the JFK Act records would be activated. What is the justification for, what is the reasonable justification for the agency saying these records are publicly available through NARA, and therefore we don't have to search our records? That's the one piece that troubles me, because tax analysts had been on the books for 20 years saying that an agency can't avoid its FOIA obligations by saying that records in their files are publicly available or in another agency's files. Right. Understood, Your Honor. The one factor different from tax analysts and Davey, in a large part, is that at the time of Mr. Morley's request, there was a significant effort by the CIA to populate the JFK Assassination Act files, pursuant to statute. That statute had a purpose. The JFK statute. Yes, yes. And in that case, it was specifically meant to allow the CIA, in this case, to refer requesters to this reservoir of documents. There had been significant efforts made to make that particular repository of documents complete. So upon seeing a request that specifically and explicitly references the assassination, it was a reasonable interpretation to think that those records would be found in that repository. As it turns out, hundreds of them weren't. Yes, Your Honor, and that was a result of, many of that was a result of searching the operational files of the CIA, which had, to that point, previously not been addressed in this circuit. And so other documents were produced as a result of the new precedent that was formed by this court. But it didn't mean that at the time of receiving the request, that there was an effort of abdurancy or unreasonableness in interpreting that request to be attended to the JFK Act. Is there anything in the JFK Act that would support an argument that the general rule of tax analysts doesn't apply here? Because Congress has set up this special scheme for JFK requesters to go through NARA? 
I don't believe that that was specifically addressed. The tax analyst precedent was specifically addressed in the Act itself. I haven't read anything along those lines. I will say, though, that the whole reason of the actual Act is to provide one location for requesters to go and to search for these particular documents. And I don't believe that even in that case that there was any effort by the CIA to dissuade any requester from continuing to request of the CIA any other documents they felt were not in the JFK files. And there was never a proposition by the CIA that FOIA requesters could not request these documents from the CIA. And then to follow up on Judge Henderson's question, the documents that were in your files and not produced to NARA, were those all in the operational records? Are those all operational records? In other words, were there any records in your files not produced to NARA but not arguably protected by the operational records provision? My understanding, Your Honor, is that the records that were produced, the vast majority of them, were from the operational files. In terms of whether there was any overlap. But not all, right? Not all. There were a few. That's what I'm uncertain of right now as to whether there were any overlapping. But I think the analysis there is that in terms of what was brought before the court, in terms of new documents, the travel documents, the photographs, those were all operational file information. Okay. What about just the delay? I mean, you get the request in July, and I think the agency response is four months later as against a 20-day deadline. And then, you know, the suit gets filed, and even then the first tranche of documents isn't provided until a year after the suit is filed. Right. And I think the court responded in a likely fashion that it will respond today, that this is the reality of the FOIA litigation today, is that it's not a matter of obduracy or recalcitrance, which implies some purposeful gaming of the system. But instead it's a reality of resources and the unavailability of providing funds and manpower to respond within the 20-day time limit of the statute. But even in that context, the delay itself was born in part of the now misinterpretation of the CIA's responsibility to respond directly to the actual FOIA request, as opposed to allowing the JFK Act to handle JFK assassination-related material. In that sense, that that error added to the time that it took to respond completely to the FOIA request. And the only other factor... If your opening position was this is a JFK request, those JFK records go through NARA and we don't have to search, 
would seem like that's a pretty easy one to answer pretty quickly. And limited resources is not a great excuse when all you're doing is saying we don't have to run any searches because the JFK Act makes these records available at NARA. Within the FOIA request itself, as the Court knows, that there were not just a paragraph indicating we would like JFK Act or JFK assessments from related material to Mr. Joannides. There were many sub-paragraphs and many different angles that had to be analyzed in order to make sure that there weren't any other requests that could be handled by the CIA. I believe that after the analysis of the letter in regards to the sub-paragraphs of information that helped to guide the CIA in its ultimate decision, that that was the time that it took to respond to the request. But to the extent the request on its face is much broader than JFK documents, right? It's everything about Joannides. Doesn't that cut against the reasonableness of your response of this is about JFK, go to NARA? Wouldn't there have been a lot of agency records about Joannides that had nothing to do with JFK that would have been responsive to the request? In this case, Your Honor, it took time to coordinate with other personnel within the CIA to really establish the connection, if there was one, to Mr. Joannides and the JFK assassination. In this instance, there was an entire review board that poured through the files of Mr. Joannides, searching for just these types of documents. This effort may not have been immediately available to the initial reviewer of the letter, but after analysis, it was determined that, in fact, all of the sub-paragraphs appeared to be subsumed in what would have been provided to the JFK assassination files. It was only after that analysis that we made the decision. You do the analysis, you look at all the sub-parts and pieces of it, and it takes a lot of work, but you eventually conclude that all agency records regarding Joannides either have gone to CIA through JFK or are operational files, and you have your legal position on that. That's correct. Okay. And so in terms of the other factors, briefly, I see my time is up. You can take another minute or two. Thank you, Your Honor. In terms of the public benefit factor, I believe that the only issue that we would like to highlight with that is that this Court indicated that after an analysis ex ante of the FOIA request, indicating that it had a decent chance to provide new and useful information, that the analysis ends there with the public benefit analysis. And then the District Courts are to use whatever decisions they have with regard to that particular factor in the overall balancing of the four factors. Do you think on the third, on the commercial benefit factor, where the District Court says that there was going to be a commercial benefit because of some compensation for writing news articles, do you think that's correct analysis? Well, in terms of ultimately being compensated for 
for the articles, I don't, I'm not aware of any payment records for that to establish. No, I'm saying that shouldn't count as commercial benefit, correct? In terms of receiving remuneration for the information being published? Well, I would believe that that's akin to any movie deals or book deals that an author may have, that the information is going towards that particular remuneration. I don't have any evidence that Mr. Morley was actually paid for these articles, but I believe the analysis is the same, that if there were to be made, if there were to be any remuneration, it would be along the lines of using this information to provide a paycheck for that information in exchange. But I think ultimately the amount of what was actually provided to Mr. Morley was not determinative of any particular factor. I think the court, the district court itself said it was a small, if anything, it was small, and that while it augured in the benefit of the government slightly, it was just as slight as what the district court thought was the actual public benefit analysis. Do you think when a district court concludes the fourth factor favors the government, can it ever be an abuse of discretion on appeal for the district court to have denied the fees? Ever. Certainly, I can imagine circumstances where it could be in terms of having an analysis where the other three factors weigh heavily for the plaintiff. But in this case, I believe that the issue is that there wasn't any ultimate decision that this factor was determinative or dispositive, and that the other analysis did not count. You don't think enough said was determinative? I believe. When the district court said enough said, exclamation point? I believe the court was referring to all the factors and not just one factor. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Honor. I do have one question. Yes, Your Honor. For Mr. Peterson, and that is, in view of, I think it's Morley 9, anyway, it's Judge Williams' writing, in view of that statement that showing potential public value in this case is relatively easy, that's not law in the case, I know, but are you seriously saying that the public value or benefit is, what, minimal or what? In view of this statement that we've already characterized the public benefit as being relatively easy to show. Right. Your Honor, if I understand your question, the district court did not state that the public benefit itself was implausible. To the contrary. I thought it said it was slight. That's when viewing it in weighting the four factors. I believe that's the context in which the district court used that terminology in weighing the factors. No, it just says it was small, period. Are you talking about the public interest? Right. I find that the expectation adjusted value of the public benefit that plaintiffs sought to provide was small. That's not in context. That's just in and of itself. In and of itself, I believe that in that same portion, 
I believe that he was referring to and turning to the analysis of weighing the four factors. So in this case, I believe that the court's... That's the next paragraph. That's true. Yes. So I believe that there wasn't a separate paragraph for weighing the public benefit factor other than the fact that... You're saying that we said it was easy to show, but the district court said it is, but it's small. I believe that's the ultimate position of the district court. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. I would like to respond to Chief Judge Henderson's comment about the... It turns out that the number of documents withheld in full purportedly because of the JFK Act were initially 700 and later 774. That information was produced in this lawsuit. The CIA testified to it. Then the numbers kept changing, and the National Archives later changed it to something like 3,000 withheld in full. They didn't discuss the number of partially withheld documents. And the fact now is that it's public knowledge that the National Archives itself has admitted that there are thousands of documents that were withheld, including tens of thousands of pages that were withheld under the JFK Act. The CIA... I'm sorry. I'm just not following. NARA is doing a review of... First of all, let me say that the most crucial point here is that the photograph of Joe Anides was released as part of the release of administrative records, not operational records. And secondly, the review board, there's an affidavit in the record by Judge Thunheim in which he says that if the review board had known what he came to know as a result of Morley's work in this litigation, that the review board would have ordered them all released. They were being... Now, the other point here is that the representation... But are you talking about records that were in the CIA files and never transferred to NARA? The agency has never made it clear. It says that they were transferred and that they were available online at NARA. Now, it's not true that they were available online at NARA. All NARA had was a RIF, a research identification form. You could go to the RIF and see what a subject pertained to, although there were all kinds of errors in that. That's why we now know that there are scads of missing and unaccountified documents. There are documents under the JFK Act process in order... The CIA main control, because it claimed that they were classified. If the agency that classifies information has control over it, then they have the right to keep it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor.
control over them. Of records transferred to NARA. Of records transferred to NARA. NARA has not been, the reason NARA had not met the October 26, 2017 deadline is because the agencies had not acted to allow NARA to release the stuff to the public. That's the pure and simple what was going on. You're over your time. Is there anything else you want to say in rebuttal? I think that's it. If you don't have any more questions. Thank you. The case is submitted.